Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Couric, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. so much for joining us. There's just a few things to go over before we get started. This event is being recorded by WCRI for future broadcasts and podcasts, so please take a moment now to silence your cell phones. It's time for some introductions. Anne Hood is the New York Times best-selling author of 11 books, including the best-selling novels The Book That Matters Most and The Knitting Circle, and the memoirs Comfort, A Journey Through Grief, and Kitchen Yarns, Notes on Life, Love, and Food. She lives in Providence, Rhode Island in New York City with her husband, Michael Ruhlman. Anne's featured book tonight is her memoir, Fly Girl. Michael Ruhlman is the New York Times bestselling author of award-winning cookbooks and nonfiction narratives. He is the author of Chef Thomas Keller's seminal The French Laundry Cookbook, as well as the highly successful series about the training of chefs, the making of a chef, the soul of a chef, and the reach of a chef. He is also the author of The Elements of Cooking and Ratio. Ruhlman has worked at the New York Times and as a food columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He has attended the Culinary Institute of America and is the author of 18 books about food and cooking and also such wide-ranging subjects as pediatric heart surgeon, and building wooden boats. And Michael's featured book tonight is The Book of Cocktail Ratios. Anne and Michael will be in conversation with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's Top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best of lists in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband, Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, the Ocean House Hotel, the Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. Anne, Michael, and Deborah will now have a live discussion, and after that, we will open it up to questions from the audience. I'll walk around with the microphone. We want to make sure the folks that in the future are listening on the radio will be able to hear your wonderful questions. And now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Anne Hood, Michael Roman, and Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Thank you, Lindsay. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to have you here, and thank you all for coming. You have come from a wide area. I've met people who've driven here specifically for the two of you. So that always makes me happy. Uh, one of the things with this series, we have regulars, and then we have people who come specifically for our authors. And we have the wonderful author, Luann Rice, who is uh, a dear friend of everyone up here. So thank you all. So I'm going to kind of pop back and forth between you and say whatever you want, jump in. I guess um, I'm going to start with you, Anne. Okay. Uh, so I'm very interested. I think of you as a novelist. You also, this is not your first foray into memoir. So. Talk a little bit about 
anything you want. Do you have a preference of, of writing fiction or writing memoir? And when you do write memoirs such as this and the others, how do you choose where you're going with I it? I have never heard her ask that question. I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, good. Good. So I have to say that my love is really writing fiction. Because I think when you're that seven-year-old kid in second grade and you say you want to be a writer, you're not thinking, I'd like to write my memoir. You know? Right. right? right. You're thinking, I want to write Little Women or a Nancy Drew series or whatever. So I, it never occurred to me that I would ever write about myself. And I remember when my first novel came out in 1987, my fabulous publicist at Doubleday, I had an article in the Washington Post style section, an essay, about being a flight attendant. And she said, you should write essays. You should write a memoir about being a flight attendant. And I internally rolled my eyes. I was like, who cares? Who cares about me? Or so it really took me a long time to come around to writing about myself. Partially, it was survival, because back in the old days, there was something called magazines. I don't know if anybody remembers <laughs> them. But that's how many writers supported themselves. Right. So when it, while I was writing my novels, which take two to five years, I was working for every magazine you can imagine. And what was I writing but personal essays? Right. So they kind of evolved into the next step of writing memoir. Mm -hmm. This one was unusual because I was a flight attendant from 1978 until 1986. So why write it now, right? Like, other than I was, it was during the pandemic and I needed to get out of the house and the only way I could do it was to remember when I used to go places. Um, but people always asked me about the job. And right before the pandemic, someone asked me, or said to me, it wasn't a question, they said, how interesting that you flew at the end of the golden age of travel and the beginning of what we now have. And I had never put my job or myself in that historical context. And so that got me thinking about what it was like to be 21 years old, from Rhode Island, you know, went to URI, and all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, serving caviar in 747s to Paris, you know, every weekend. And what that meant, and the next step was realizing, well, this isn't really about the history of aviation. It's my coming of age story. Mm -hmm. And those things only come from really digging deep with yourself, really reliving the time I watched ads. You know, I looked at magazines. I interviewed my roommates whose memories are shot. I was like, oh my God, I'm in such better, <laughs> I'm in so much better shape than you. I'd be like, what did we serve with the Chateaubriand in first class? And they're like, we served Chateaubriand. I'm like, okay, next, <laughs> next roommate, you know? Um, but realizing that, like I kind of grew up at 35,000 feet. Right. Once I figured that out, then I knew I had a book. I love that. And I think often coming of age stories just by their very nature, turn into kind of coming-of-age examinations for all of us if we are at all generationally similar, and even if we're not, because then you're put into the position of thinking, well, that isn't what my youth was like. So I love that aspect, that memory lane. But I'm going to caviar, uh, go right off the caviar segue, <laughs> because, and Chateaubriand. So Michael, what is it about food? What, what is it that people love about food? What does it do for us? I mean, individually, in families and cultures, why, why do we 
want to make it? Why do we want to read about it? Why, what is it about food? We need it to survive. Well, there's that. Um, and I think that when you, when something that you, when, when something that you need to survive starts making you sick, as our food has been doing, I think you become very obsessive about food, and I think that's what's happened in our culture since, since really the 80s, 90s. Really, the 90s are when widespread food interests began, when chefs were made into stars, when the Food Network came on broadcasting 24-hour food. I think partly it was because <clears throat> our food was making us sick and we didn't know where to turn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, we don't think much about breathing, but um, if you didn't have any air, that's about all you could think about. <laughs> um, so that's a, that's a big sort of darker reason to be interested in food, but food connects us. Um, food is w what we come together over. It brings us together. And I think that's really important and what um, we can lose when we stop cooking for each other. I'm, I'm just a big fan of cooking your own food um, and certainly at least sharing your own food. It, 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 it brings us together. It allows us to tell our stories. We're the only animal uh, that cooks food. We're the only animal that cooks food and we're the only animal that tells stories. Uh, and I think they're related. And I think somehow when our, our, our early hominid ancestors learned how to cook food, it facilitated sitting around a fire and sharing the stories of our day. Um, <clears throat> even the, the softness of the food allowed for, for <clears throat> delicate vocal anatomy to, um, mm. to evolve. And so cooking and storytelling are linked, and that's what I've always been attracted to food, why I've always been attracted to food. Um, also, I, I love to eat. It's just one of the great pleasures. <laughs> it's a great pleasure, and you can do it every single day. Um, and that's not to be ignored. Multiple times a day. I remember once, many years ago, when I was young, uh, a, a guy said, you know, Honestly, if I could just take a pill instead of eating, I would do it. And I thought, that is just the most depressing oh, thing I've ever heard. <laughs> what? I mean, how would you? Because you're right. It is, it's how primarily we gather. It's how we gather. And we've forgotten that because it's around us 24-7, everywhere we turn. Uh, most of us, I mean, we do have, we do have um, food deserts. We do have um, children who are hungry. Uh, but for the most part, we, we're a wealthy country that has wide accessibility to food, um, and we need to not take it for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really important. Our food supply is really important, and eating good food is really important. And there's, something, there's another point I wanted to make, but I can't remember it. What was the question you asked? <laughs> what is it about food? What attracted you? What, what? God, there's oh, well, there's, just, so, there's yeah. just so much. Anyway, I, I'm lucky enough to be uh, married to a really good cook, who will not cook with me, oh, no. um, but yeah. she's a great cook. He looms. <coughs> he looms. <laughs> I'm cooking and he's looming. And uh, I say, stop looming. I what just want to ask, like, why did, you, why did you salt it now? Well, th those, are, that's like, those are like mother-in-law questions. Oh. Like, I'm the mother-in-law. <laughs> so, yeah, sort of, oh, are, are you sure you wanted to do that? <laughs> no, I never see I, that. I love this. It's like, so why did you put that in the pan now? And I'm like, because my mother told me to years ago, but I know that I did it wrong somehow. <laughs> no, that's not so. It's not so. You take it as a criticism when I'm just actually really curious. You're a loomer. You're a loomer. 
So, so there's the attraction to food, but now I want to go back to you, Anne. Yeah. So you were, you know, a middle-class girl from Rhode Island, uh, and I was thinking about, I was a middle-class girl from Michigan, okay. not so different. Yeah. I had this attraction to the movie world. Mm. You had this attraction to travel, and I think for middle-class girls in America, we weren't necessarily jetting around on our trust funds, <laughs> right? So you found this way into it. I'd, I'd love you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, I grew up, and, and maybe you had the same experience, Deborah, in Michigan, but every vacation that my family took was in the station wagon. Mm -hmm. The windows rolled up, the smoke from two parents smoking nonstop, you know, being in the way back, you know, oh my goodness, and driving to like Pennsylvania Dutch country as it was called then, or Niagara Falls, or my father was from Indiana, so every other summer we drove to Indiana. Um, long, boring, you know. So the idea of being on an airplane was so foreign to me. Right. I mean, honestly, it never occurred to me. Of course, in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, most families didn't fly. It wasn't just, it was businessmen and really wealthy people. Because we'll remember that the government used to set the, um, the airfare prices. And so to go from Boston to LA was about $1,500. And it was not negotiable. You know, that's what you paid. So it was mostly businessmen until um, deregulation. We don't have to talk about that, that's kind of boring. But anyway, so here I am. And I'm in the back seat of that station wagon. And I'm just thinking, there's got to be another way. <laughs> <laughs> just somebody get me out of here. You know? And I would do things like I would record um, every license plate I saw. And then when I got back to Rhode Island, I would write to the governor with new designs for the Rhode Island license plate. <laughs> I'd be, Colorado has the Rocky Mountains. And you know, Pennsylvania is the Keystone State and all this stuff. And I just had ways to like get out and do something that people would notice, you know? And, uh, and then I read a book called How to Become an Airline Stewardess. I was 12 years old. And the first line in that book was, would you like a boyfriend in every city in the world? <laughs> and, and the die was cast, people. <laughs> I was like, yes, I would actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I remember shortly after that, we had to go to our guidance counselor and announce what we wanted to be because in those days they tracked you, like college sure. or oh, we yes. called it commercial, right? And so they were trying to figure out where you fit into the, the big picture for your school. And he said, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I want to be a writer. And Mr. Stone said, no, people don't do that, Anne. And I said, well, how do we get all these books? And he looked over and he said, all the people who wrote those books are dead. <laughs> and I looked and he was right. So I said, well, then I'd like to be an airline stewardess. And he said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, where do you get these ideas? <laughs> and I explained to him that if I was an airline stewardess, I would have adventures. And then I could write books about my adventures. And he said, no, Anne, smart girls don't become airline stewardesses. And so I said, well, I'm out of ideas. I'm 12, I've given you two, you know? <laughs> and he said, Look, be a teacher or a secretary or just make your life easy and get married. Woo! But I held on, 1969, but I held on to that idea 
those, that dual dream. And the first one was to be a, we became, I was a flight attendant and I never got to be a stewardess. It did change by the time I got hired. Um, but he used to come to every reading I did in Rhode Island until he died. And he'd come up and, you know, he you know, got, like the old man sort of, you know, or, or he'd come over and I'd say, oh, Mr. Stone, and I'd hug him and then he'd say, Mayor, don't tell that story. <laughs> and I said, oh, Mr. Stone, I'm going to tell that story for the rest of my life because women need to know what we were told in 1969. Yes. You know? yes. But anyway, I just, that book, a silly little paperback, which I found on eBay and have a copy of now, just changed my life because they talked about, you know, breakfast in Barcelona, lunch in Paris, dinner in Morocco. I'm like, yes, yes. Well, when I was growing up, I, too, never flew on an airplane. I, I went in fourth grade to Florida as a guest of my grandmother. And we did the car trip uh, from Detroit down south. We followed the Hillbilly Highway to <laughs> family back and forth. That, that's the route that you follow there. But I remember these sort of glamorous, very glamorous, older cousins. They were a couple. And he and she work for Pan Am, Whoa. and they had an apartment in Pittsburgh, but they would. They would have dinner together in London or, or Rome, and I just had never, it was completely out of the realm of possibility right. in the world we grew up in. And you're a Cleveland boy, right? Yeah, my mom's from Detroit. Okay, <laughs> and I went to Lake Erie College in Painesville, Ohio, oh. so I have Cleveland ties. So how did you get from Cleveland to the CIA was your first step, right? The Culinary Institute. Um, or no, was, how did it, it go? actually my second book. All right. Um, I, I went to Duke University. I was a copy boy at the New York Times immediately after. Um, I cast about for many years doing various jobs and was an editor at a magazine in Cleveland. And I, um, I, I wrote a book about a boys' school that was sort of defiantly all boy. Uh, at a time when anything all girl was great and anything all boy was toxic. Right. The school was arguing that if we do it right, all male education can be a great thing and we're legislating it out of, uh, out of existence um, and it's more a marketing effort rather than what's best for the kids. Then I was casting about for another idea. I'd written a, a, a lot about a lot of Cleveland chefs. They'd all gone to the Culinary Institute of America. The whole country was then becoming more and more interested in chefs and cooking, I love to cook. I cooked for myself. I'm an only child, and I cooked for myself since I was in fourth grade. Tell them about the pear tart. I love that story. I saw Julia. <laughs> Julia was a great inspiration, as I'm sure yeah. she was for so many people. Um, and I saw her um, home alone one February dreary winter in Cleveland, um, and I saw her make an apple pie, and she made it seem so easy and interesting. And I thought, I can do that. And that was her genius. She made you feel right, like you could right. do it. And I, fourth grader, went and found a can of pears and syrup, and I made a little tiny crust the way she instructed, <laughs> and I covered it, and I baked it, um, and it was terrible. <coughs> My dad came home from work, an ad man, put his briefcase down, and I said, Dad, I made a pear, I made a pear pie. And he said, you did what? <laughs> and he was so astonished that I'd actually, his kid had made a pie, a little pie, while he was at work, he just praised, no, praised me no end. And so, you know, it's like, oh, I guess it's not bad after all. Um, that was when I first started cooking. Okay. And um, <clears throat> it was because of Julia. 30 years later, 
yeah, about 30 years later, I'm looking for another book idea. I've always wanted to be a writer. Didn't want to write about food. Um, but I thought, God, why don't I go to the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, and see what you need to know, see what the best school in the country says you need to know in order to be a chef. And I talked my way in there. I became a student. I dressed in checks and a chef coat and carried my knife kit around and learned the basics and, and, and really learned how to cook. What it, what the thing I learned was that you can't know what it means to be a chef unless you actually become one because the changes are internal. The changes are about how you make decisions, um, uh, how you respond to challenges, uh, how you respond to heat. And um, <clears throat> I had no choice but to become a cook a real cook in order to write that book. And once I was a cook, I couldn't really go back. It changes who, changed who I was. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. Younger, it's hard to over-exaggerate the cultural shift that we experienced as a country. I think up until World War II, food was really survival. Yeah. It was a question of, will there be enough and can we provide for the people? So that's why canned goods seem so good. That's why frozen TV <laughs> dinners, my husband, I don't know, he was serious. He's a little bit older and his, just, it, he lusted for TV dinners <laughs> as a boy, and they're just awful, awful. But that was progress. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we went from food equaling progress and survival to Julia Child coming along and yeah. telling us it could be something pleasurable and refined. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's was, exactly what she did. It was not in our, I mean, what was it, Chef Boyardee? From Cleveland, actually. From Cleveland. <laughs> Chef Boyardee was. <laughs> well, yes, I remember it well. All right, so food on the airplane. Let's talk about that. Chateaubriand, and I was not on those flights, clearly. Um, but I was. I mean, there were meals. There were full meals if you flew an hour. So yeah. did you get a window into what was going on? Where did they make that stuff? <laughs> I remember during training, they kind of marched us through the catering thing, but we were so not paying attention. Right, I mean, they're sure. like, these are the meals, and we're like, whatever. You know, we have bigger fish to fry. Like, we're trying to learn how to get off these airplanes if we need to in an emergency. Um, so we didn't really know that stuff. All I know is that it was quite wonderful that you'd be on a flight from, say, Boston to Washington, D.C., and do a full cocktail service and a full meal service for like 180 people. Yeah. And it was fabulous. And they always complained. You know, I remember some guy looking at me, I put the, the pot roast down and he said, oh, now I know what TWA stands for. That was awful. <laughs> but boy, I'd love one of those pot roast dinners on a, like when I'm traveling Can for 17 hours and don't even have a bag of peanuts. We just, service was number one after safety. And I always love to tell this story because especially if you didn't fly in the 70s or your family didn't fly a lot, like most of us. 1978, a flight from Boston to Los Angeles in coach. When you sat down, we handed out menus. Choice of five entrees. We came through, took your drink orders. This is coach. 
and your meal order. Then we delivered your cocktails with some little munchy thing, you know, like nuts or something. Then we came through with an appetizer service. TWA's was a <coughs> mozzarella tomato skewers with basil, you know, very, yeah, back in the 70s. When we do that, then we would hand out the salads, <laughs> then the main course, and then the desserts. All of these were separate, sort of like cleaning up, offering wine. I mean, you paid for the cocktails and the wine, but offering wine. Then we did a coffee service, which was a big deal, you know, with the coffee pot and the silver creamer and all the sugars and all that stuff. Then we did an after-dinner drink service where we took the liquor cart and we filled the top with like amaretto, drambuie, um, you know, all of the after-dinner drinks. Galliano, remember oh, Galliano? Yeah, seventies. Yes. That was the big, long, that yellow big. bottle. So weird. And then in Kahlua, all that stuff. And then we would put dry ice on it, and put water on the dry ice, which made it like smoke. So we'd come out in a cloud. <laughs> so we'd go down the aisle with our after-dinner drinks, walking in a cloud. And then we're still not done. We did a TWA mint service. On a silver tray, these, you know, melt-away mints? Yeah. That taste? I love them. I do, too. But they were circles, but they had that taste, and they were light green with the TWA logo. Then we would pass that around. That was Coach going from Boston to Los Angeles. Never mind what was going on in first class, which is cooking Chateaubriand to order. To order, medium rare, rare, well done, carving it in the aisle, tossing the salad in the aisle, making desserts in the aisle. Um, it was incredible, and I loved every minute because, look, I was a kid from West Warwick. You know, we ate at Valley Steakhouse. I thought I had died and gone to heaven when I got that steak from Valley Steakhouse. And here I am seeing this whole other part of the world, right, of how the world lived. Right. It, it's in, incredible to even think of now. So. The book you're here talking about, Michael, is about cocktails. So going from Galliano, do you remember the, <laughs> who remembers the Freddy Fuddpucker? That was a drink with Galliano. Nobody remembers that no. but me. Harvey so, Wallbanger. Harvey Wallbanger. Yes, it came later. Yes, yeah, Harvey Wallbanger. also Galliano. Yes, so cocktails. How, why, uh, you're writing about really Simple cocktails and recipes. So, was yeah, it fun? Right? Oh, yeah. It was fun as the taster, I just want to say. <laughs> About 15 years ago, I wrote a book called Ratio The Secret Codes Behind the Craft of Everyday Cooking, which looked at not recipes, but proportions of, of our basic foods. Like, I looked at bread, which is five parts flour and three parts water. Um, and if you know a ratio, then you know not just one recipe, you know. You know, a hundred recipes, if you know the ratio. And I, that's what I learned in culinary school, and I wrote a, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I wrote a book about it. Forward to the pandemic, and we're all inside. We're Anne and <clears throat> her son Sam and his then fiance, now wife, um, and I, and Annabelle, but she wasn't drinking. But one of the things we do every day is have a new cocktail. Why a, not? We're all in one. our pajamas sitting there. Um, <laughs> And so I would make a cocktail. We'd all have a group cocktail. And I'd make one, I'd make a Negroni, or I'd make a Manhattan, or I'd make a, a lemon drop, or I'd make a, a gimlet. Um, and I realized then that how, how similar all these cocktails were. 
you know, a, a gimlet is just a, a basically a daiquiri made with gin rather than rum. A, a Manhattan is a Rob Roy made with bourbon. Um, <clears throat> a, a, a cosmopolitan is basically a margarita with vodka and a little splash of cranberry. So I wanted to look at, what I want to do is simplify food and simplify cooking and then simplify cocktails in an era of the craft cocktail, which is getting more and more complicated and more and more complex. I wanted smoke. to simplify. Speaking uh, of smoke, <coughs> smoke in cocktails now. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Craft yeah. cocktails, yeah. Um, but when people become interested in something, they want to explore it. Cer certainly mixologists do. They found craft cocktails. They looked at old cocktails. They found a whole world of cocktails that we'd lost from the 50s, 60s, and 70s when we just sort of ruined our cocktails and didn't really pay attention to them. Uh, <clears throat> and so I applaud the craft cocktail movement. It's given us great cocktails like The Last Word, which is in the book. Oh, but, yes, that's good. <laughs> but what we love are classic cocktails. We don't, you know, we don't always want that, you know, the cucumber-infused simple syrup with mint and herbs and, you know, thousand garnishes. We want the classic cocktails. So I wanted to explore classic cocktails and make them accessible to everyone. Um, so many people ask me, <clears throat> you know, people will come over and I'll say, would you like a Negroni? Would you like a Boulevardier? Um, both the same drink, just switch, switching on the spirit. Would you like um, a Manhattan? Or would you like a mezcal Negroni? They're all the same drinks, mm -hmm. but you have a wide variety of them. And I wanted to just simplify cocktails. I wanted to write about the history of them. Um, and I love cocktails, so it was, I just thought, God, this is, this is, I have to write this book. And Anne kept saying, I have to write this book. Oh, because Catherine, <laughs> Sam's now wife, um, is a videographer. And so she said, let's videotape these and put them on like Instagram or YouTube or wherever. I don't know where it goes. But, and so we were, we were actually starting, you know, we'd set it up and she'd videotape and they looked great. And we start getting messages, when's the book? When's the book? We started doing a live cocktail hour on Instagram. Every Friday at 6, we'd do a cocktail and we'd, uh, it would, everyone would conclude with a poem. And um, 15 or 20 minutes, we'd take questions from whoever happened to be watching uh, and it was At great. did the PEI one. Oh, that's right. You were there. <laughs> the Bloody, the Bloody Caesar. Caesar we did. That's With right. moonshine. Moonshine. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so believe it or not, in one of my early jobs when I first came to New York, I was a waitress at a, it was actually a hotel that served airlines. It was the Sheraton City Squire on 7th Avenue, and we served SAS. Oh, they yeah. came in and out of there. So I was a waitress, and one day the bartender didn't come to work. And I said, I can do that. <laughs> so the first fellow came up to the bar and asked for a gimlet, and I took a tall glass like this, <laughs> I put in the shot of gin, and I filled it to the very top <laughs> with Rose's lime juice, clearly. Oh. It was a terrible thing I served that man, <laughs> but I got better after that. <laughs> Those were the days when they would just let you learn on the job. That's right. But we had that red book. What was that? There was a little... Mr. Boston. Yeah, that something. was it. Yeah, yeah. That was the red yeah. book. Right. Uh, and you had to learn to serve yeah. cocktails. I actually uh, make very good did cocktails. Did they train you? Oh, yeah. That yeah. was a big part of it. It's funny because the days in training were so long, but they had to cover so many things like evacuating airplanes, delivering babies, fixing a broken coffee maker, 
you know, boarding, how, how you board properly, setting up your carts, and how to make cocktails. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the thing they always told us was, fill that glass with ice. Yeah. Fill that glass with ice. And I really, whenever I get a cocktail that doesn't have ice, I'm like, wrong. Because I thought that was really a good, like, just simple lesson, fill that glass with ice. And, and the, the first thing you learn in a bar is never use the glass to scoop the no. ice. Oh, right. Because you're going to have to drain that whole thing yeah. and not use it because they break. If they break in yeah, there. Yeah, you've yep. got to use the That's right, the, the scoop. Thing. Yep. Yes, the little things we know. So, all right, so here we are in a hotel. And we are in the service business, as you can see. And human beings are interesting. And when you're in the service business, you get to see many of the peculiarities of human beings. So, Anne, give us some really doozy flying passenger stories. So There's so many we could be here oh, until yes. tomorrow. But I'll tell you a few of my favorites. So one is, you know, I have my cart going down the aisle, and I stop and ask this guy what he wants to drink. And when I ask him, I look, and he has on a shirt and tie and tidy whities <laughs> No pants. <laughs> and so I say, sir, where are your pants? <laughs> and he says, up there in the, in the overhead compartment. I said, but you need to have them on. He goes, oh, I can't. Um, I don't want them to be wrinkled when I land. And oddly, that made a certain amount of sense to me. Even though I know we should all have our pants on, I still kind of was like, and I said, uh-huh, okay. And so I reached up and I got a blanket. There used to be blankets and pillows on every flight. Yeah. I got a blanket. I said, just cover up. But when you leave this plane, I'm watching you. You better have your pants on. He said, okay. And he did. He left with his pants on. I mean, it was so funny. Also, you know, people often ask me about the uh, Mile High Club, you know, if it's a real thing, which it is, trust me. And what they told us in training was, look, this is a thing. And we don't really have a policy because it's super weird that people do this. So it's up to you. You want to rap on that lav door and say, get out of here. You can do that. You can turn the other way. You can do whatever. There's no real policy. So I kind of was in the, the mind of who cares? I mean, who cares? I mean, it's 14 hours to Cairo or whatever. You know, whatever you have to do, you do. <laughs> but it was when people, people wanted to join the Mile High in the cabin, like in the seats. That's when I would sort of put my foot down. Yeah. Yeah. They would get, because in those days, not every seat was full. You know, that, I know it right, seems right. odd now. And often that middle section on a 747, five seats, would be empty, or there'd be some row that was empty like that. And a couple would find it and go under a blanket, and you'd just be like, no, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Go to the lab. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I also have to say, you know, the joke, or like it wasn't always the passengers, it was also me at 21, 22, not really knowing yet how to handle a lot of things. And so we were told, um, you have to talk to three passengers in a meaningful way on a flight. And I was doing flights like from Pittsburgh to, to New York or so, short flights. How meaningful can you be when you're also doing cocktails and <laughs> dinner? But I'm such a like, yes, I can. I will do that kind of person. And so I remember being, the position was called A, you're at the boarding door. 
and you know, hi, welcome to TWA, welcome to Flight Whatever. Oh, so nice to see you. And these three or four people came on and they had on black turtlenecks. And I said, oh, are you a folk singing group? <laughs> and as soon as I said it, I'm like, oh, people wear black for another reason. And they said, no, we're on our way to our mother's funeral. <laughs> and I said, no more meaningful conversations. <laughs> I have just learned to shut my mouth. You know, I'm not doing that anymore. So Michael, did you work professionally as a chef? Were you in restaurants? Uh, I worked briefly as a, as a cook, and I wouldn't call myself a chef, but I worked mm -hmm. briefly as a cook at a restaurant called Sans Souci in Cleveland. It was a high-end French restaurant. Oh, yeah. um, and I did so not because I love cooking, because I was broke and we needed a, a health insurance and I needed a job. Yeah. Uh, and I was cooking there for about four months when the French Laundry Cookbook gig came in, and right. I was able to quit quick the cooking so, job. But can you talk a little bit about restaurant culture? I mean, obviously all these shows we see and mm. it we, we understand the kind of diva chef. Was it like that then? Um, no, it, it, it was like not the second season, but the first season of The Bear. That's a mm. very accurate portrayal of what the kitchen was like. Um, it was about, it was a unforgiving, macho, machismo, testosterone driven, I'm bit better than you, tougher than you, kind of atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, the work is really hard, and you and it's, and it's long, and you don't make a lot of money doing it. So whatever tools you could forge in your in your mind to get the work done, you did it. And part of that was just you had to be tough. Uh, so there 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 was a, a a real you know Anthony Bourdain's book Kitchen Confidential really drew this out. I didn't like that book when it first came out because I think it sort of glorified horrible behavior. Mm. Um, and I'd been at the French Laundry, which was in the process of sort of revolutionary, revolutionizing kitchen behavior. Thomas was the first person to request that everyone was called chef, not a cook. We call everyone chef. Even the servers were called chef. It was a term of respect. Mm -hmm. um, and so he did so many things, and you'll see that in the bear. That's why they say that that line is in the bear. Uh, so many things that he introduced to the kitchen are, are actually verbatim in the bear. <clears throat> and he helped to transform it. Um, and it's become a better place, a nicer place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one that's nicer to women in, a fa in, a, in an industry that's famously abusive to women. Um, Lord knows how the women chefs now who were cooking in the 80s and 90s did it because they were, they were shat upon and bullied and harassed, seriously harassed. And they had to be tough. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's a pretty brutal world that's gotten a lot better because it's become more professional. Before you all leave, when you're out in the lobby, you should look at a series of drawings. We, we have a lot of uh, illustration by Ludwig Bemelmans. Mm -hmm. And over on this wall above the piano, there's a series of drawings he did in 1952 for Town & Country magazine when the Ritz Hotel was closing in New York. And it shows a lot of behind the scenes looks at hotel life and one of them is a knife uh, a knife throwing chef from 1952 we'll take a short break and be back with the ocean house author series here on wcri and we're back with the ocean house author series on wcri to go to your questions, so get ready. But before we do, I'm told I need to ask you how you met 
I'll, I'll begin. Hopefully she'll finish. <laughs> Um, and yet, we tell basically the same story. Yeah, you yes, said you did. Yes, because my husband same. and I tell a different story. So. <laughs> well, my, my, the first part is easy because Anne doesn't remember it. That's so right. I can That's get away with it. That's the only difference, it's the thing I don't remember. I was a scholar at uh, Breadloaf Writers Conference, uh, uh, one of the best writers' conferences in the country. I wanted to be a novelist, I wanted to be a writer. Um, and I'd done an article for the New York Times Magazine, and on the strength of that, I was given a scholarship uh, to Breadloaf. Anne had just published, or uh, the year before, had published her first novel, Somewhere Off the Coast of Maine. And she was on the faculty. She had actually been a student a cup for a couple of times, maybe once. One time. One time. And now she's back as a faculty member and, um, and a best-selling author, and a hot author, I might add. <coughs> um, and I was ingratiating myself with all kinds of authors. But I, I saw Anne. I, don't know, I honestly don't know why I called out with her. As she remembers, she would have been walking with Helen Shulman and uh, Jennifer Egan, both, you know, both substantial novelists uh, today. But I called out to Anne, I said, Ms. Hood. Uh, again, I don't know why I called out to her, but I did. And she turned around <clears throat> and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to I be a writer. And she said, you will. And she turned and walked away and I didn't see her again for 20 years. Ah. In my memory, sh she's looking down on me. She's like t 10 feet tall. <laughs> <coughs> 20 years later, I have indeed become a writer. And I'm in Cleveland, and um, I'm married with kids. And, you know, it's 2008. Um, and uh, I'm established, and I'm doing the keynote. He's actually very famous, but I had never heard of him. But he was very famous at the And uh, I was giving the keynote speech. And uh, for at, this a writer's at a writer's conference, there were about 100 people in this community center that I was giving. And I was up at the podium. <clears throat> and I looked down and I saw Ann Hood. I'd followed her career. I'd read about, and, you know, I'd read her essays in the Times. And um, I saw her there, and I'd always remembered that moment at Breadloaf. <clears throat> and when I saw her there, I went off script and said, I opened my talk by saying, she doesn't know this, but I've been in love with Ann Hood for 20 years. <laughs> And the, the funny thing is that when he walked in, I said to my friend Polly, who was sitting next to me, oh, look at how cute that guy is. And then he says this, and she grabs me, and she said, the cute guy's in love with you. <laughs> <laughs> so I went up to him. He's signing books, and I said, you know, usually when people are in love with me, I know them. So this is kind of funny. And I remember he jumped up, and he dropped his pen, and like he was all fumbly, and he's like, I, when you come back to Cleveland, I want to cook for you. And I remember thinking, I'm not ever coming back to Cleveland. I just came <laughs> for this thing I'm doing, you know? And I'm like, sure, sure, sure. And we, we exchanged whatever, because it changed so quick. Was it email or, I don't even know. We exchanged addresses. I wanted to send her some of my books, I know, and she sent me some of hers. Yeah, we exchanged books or whatever. And then another 10 years passed. The story is almost over. No, no, three years passed. Oh, three others, 10. Oh, yeah, no, three. You're right, you're right. Another three years pass, and then he tells me, oh, I see you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair. So am I. Do you want to have dinner? And I'm like, no, because I'm busy. I have this. I have that. But we, we find this one hour where we can have um, drinks. And he said, yes, yeah, the only thing that works is I'm having dinner with my mother. And I'm like, this guy's too perfect. Like, he's having dinner with his mother during the Miami Book Fair? Like, how cool is that, you know? So we meet for drinks, and it's very brief, but it's lovely. And we learn that we have apartments in New York City. 
around the corner from each other. Wow. Around, literally around the corner from each other. And then, I don't know, however many, more a year, million years pass, and then... Yeah, more, like four more years pass, my... Um, I Our separate. marriages fall apart. Yeah. And then, um, and then we'd stay in sporadic touch. And very like, loose, very loose. Anne would text me saying, I'm reading a bar- Barbuda, what should I have? Yeah, things yeah, like that. things like that. <clears throat> and then, um, so my publicist says, I have a new book coming out, and she's like, you know, we want to broaden your audience, so we think you should maybe have dinner with a food writer and have the food writer write about you. And I said, I don't know any food writers. And she said, well, I was thinking of somebody like Michael Rollman. I said, I know him, he'll do it. <laughs> he's in love with me. Yeah, he's in love with me. And I texted him, he's like, I will do it on Sunday. <laughs> and the rest is kind of history, here oh. we are. <laughs> yeah, we fell in love that night. Yeah. That is yeah. a very, very good meeting story. Okay, questions from the audience. Raise your hands. The mic will come to you. So this is for Michael. What was your major at Duke University? Uh, I was an English major. And I studied with Reynolds Price um, because I, wanted, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Okay. We set you up for the rest of your life. Yeah. Here we go. This is for Anne. Um, I've read a lot of your stuff. I love it. Um, coming from a very traditional home in West Warwick, <laughs> how did your parents feel about you becoming an airline stewardess and going off on this glamorous life? Were they shocked or go for it? That's <laughs> such a great question because I have had people since Fly Girl came out at different events say that they wanted to be a flight attendant, and their parents said, no way. And my parents were, I mean, my mother's only thing was, it, maybe it didn't have job security, but my father was, do we get free tickets? <laughs> and I said yes, and he's like, let's go to Logan Airport and get some applications. They loved it, and they used those free tickets. They flew all the time. Yeah, they loved and, it. And uh, the other thing we really didn't touch on, it was a very onerous process of, Harder to get a job than, I, I can't even think of anything that's yeah. that hard. Yeah, to today. be hired was so hard. Like this, this um, application process and the actual interviews, it was so stressful that I think I lost 10 pounds just like going through the nerves of being in those rooms with those people. And TWA at the time had arguably the most difficult, which was the fourth and final um, interview. They flew you to Kansas City, and for three days, you were watched, interviewed, weighed, filmed. Um, They tested you for drugs. Three days. I mean, everybody was a mess. And I remember I made friends with this woman, uh, you know, another young woman who was also interviewing. Her name was Gigi. And, like, when we hear, we're going to write to each other. And so I wrote. I said, Gigi, I got the job. And she wrote back and said, I didn't get the job, but... Well, you actually got hired. I thought you were a spy for TWA because you were so perfect for the job that I thought you were really, you had infiltrated to watch us all. I was like, no, no. Michael, two quick questions. Um, First, what was the hardest thing that, what was your hardest area of study at CIA? Nothing was hard. Um, It was all, it was all a great big adventure. Um, The hardest thing I had to do was learn how to work the line at the best restaurant. Um, I worked the grill station, and I was terrified from the moment I set foot in that kitchen uh, until service began, figuring there's no way I can possibly get everything done and be ready for service. So that was the most uncomfortable time um, that I did because I was just terrified the entire time. All right, and then what's your impression of the bear? Um, 
I, I, I love to talk about this because I love the first season of The Bear. It's, it's the first, Ratatouille was the first movie that got kitchen culture right. Um, <laughs> and it really did. It really got it right. It got the whole ethos of the, of, the, of the kitchen world, of the French brigade system right. The Bear gets it right in the first season and it falls apart in the second season. The second season is ridiculous. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's not true the way chefs taste. Um, what happens, I don't like it. Um, I love the kitchen ethos in the beginning, uh, but again, it falls apart in the end. And Anne would say it falls apart at the end of the first season. I couldn't when, stand that show. Oh when, my goodness, but I'm not a chef, so you know that's okay. There's an unlikely place where some money is found, and she just couldn't get over it. I am just too logical for some of the things. That's my she, problem in she did, she did make a great point in that the pastry chef at a, at a, at a small restaurant like that would not be doing fine pastry work. Or be given the well, like there's, the they job. can't meet the orders, and everybody's flipping out. And he's like, "Oh, I'm frosting a cake." I was like, "No way!" Yeah, that way. wouldn't happen. <laughs> no way. But for the most part, for season one, gets it right. <laughs> Michael, can you talk a little bit about the process of writing the cookbook for the French Laundry between you and Thomas Keller, and what that involved? What a good question. Um, hey. Sure. Yeah, it is a good yeah. question because um, he said, "I don't want a regular cookbook. Um, that's why we didn't get a cookbook writer." Uh, I wanted somebody who could tell stories. I want, I want a book of stories. I don't want a book of recipes. Um, and so that was my directive. And so what I did was I, I went out there and I lived with him uh, in his house for uh, much of that winter, the winter of uh, 1998. Um, and then he came to Cleveland to finish the book. And um, I, that first cookbook I, I wrote as a journalist. I wrote it in third person, told stories. Thomas was one of the characters in the stories. Um, and that's how I did it. I reported, so like a reported cookbook uh, and a document of how their recipes were done. And we had to fight to, with the publisher to use the recipes as they were used at the French Laundry, not dumbing anything down, not making anything easier, but have a document of how things were actually prepared there. Um, and I told real stories. And the only concession the publisher said, it's gotta be in Thomas's voice. So I had to go back and put it in first person um, but that's how it was done. He wanted to tell stories. And I think that's partly why it was so successful. Huh. Also, he was doing something that nobody else was doing. The food was beautiful. Uh, we had a great photographer. It was just a wonderful team that came together with that extraordinary book. Anyhow, I've been to Bread Loaf also. And um, I listened to Ann Hood read her from her pages of Tomato Pie. And I was wondering if you've ever, Michael, to you, Read her tomato pie essay, and have you guys ever made tomato pie together? One, I will never make tomato pie <laughs> because it will not live up to that. <clears throat> okay, well, yeah, uh, yes, I have uh, read it many times. Um, I actually teach that essay because it is a, it's a brilliant and you know perfect. It's like a perfect essay, <clears throat> um, and and the pie itself is fantastic. If anybody wants to read it. Google my last name and tomato pie. Uh, I've reprinted that essay um, on my website. It's also in her book um, called Cooking Yarns, Kitchen Yarns, um, a book of essays that use food to get at the more important parts of our life. Um, and it's another reason why I love food. It's, it's often, you know, it stands in for the emotional complexities of, of being human and having relationships and, um, I don't know, food, you know, tomato pie was, for Anne, it's all about, it's about loss, but not loss. 
and it's about all the things that she lost, um, but that you don't really lose in the end. And you can't write that. You can't just come out and say that. You need an objective correlative to say it for you. Mm -hmm. You need a, an object that represents loss and rejuvenation. Um, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect essay. I urge you to go find it. It's on my site or buy better buy her book, <laughs> uh, which is filled with great essays, oh, like your thank, Swedish meatballs. Thank you. I, I have to say that um, the recipe is from Lori Colwyn, um, who was a novelist and short story writer who died very young. But she had um, a column in Gourmet Magazine, a monthly column. And I used to clip those recipes and still make her mustard chicken, like so, the brownies, they were like Catherine Hepburn's brownies, right? And uh, tomato pie was one of them and it just held a very big importance to me as I kind of became more successful and I was able to rent beach houses for my family. Um, down at Scarborough Beach and then in Narragansett and anyway, um, and I would always make tomato pie. And then for my, my own family, you know, my kids, it's just summer was tomato pie. And we were rented a beach house in Westport, Mass. Um, a few years ago, and my son had a million friends. I don't even know how many kids were like hanging out of the, you know, off the roof. And I made something like 10 tomato pies. It was, that was sort of my, I peaked. I've never made so many of them. <laughs> And I never will again. But uh, there's this great yeah. picture of all those tomato pies. But it's just such a uh, significant recipe for me. Well, it's like the Proust, Madeleine. That's I mean, right. that is what, yeah. you know, you think about one of the most famous novels of all time. Yeah. He gets you in there with this food. object, this, right. this food that contains memories of love and family and loss and all of it. Right yeah. there in one little thing. One thing. Yeah, it love. means so much to us. I think we have time for one more question. This is for Anne. I once heard you say that you should read like a writer. Can you talk a little bit about what that process entails and um, you know, how we should do that? <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't have an MFA. I'm a complete autodidact. When I wanted to write a novel, I, I read novels that I love and I put notes on the pages. Like, I remember writing, oh, you start with action, just by reading novels, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I remember um, the ballroom scene in Anna Karenina, and I, I wrote something like, wow, Tolstoy. Like, he w you know, the way he managed so many characters in a scene. And so that's kind of what I think it means to read like a writer. You kind of are deconstructing how a writer is making a story work. Um, there, there have been maybe two or three books in my lifetime, maybe four, that when I finished reading them, I then had to go back and read it like a writer. Like I finished the book and thought, how did that writer do what he just did or she just did? I've got to figure out what they did. And went back and read it straight through again in the hopes of understanding it. So it's just, not just reading for enjoyment, but for the mechanics of it, for you know why how they handle point of view, how they describe things, when they reveal information. Just all the things we need to do as writers, that as readers we just appreciate and gobble up and don't really have to think about. But when you want to write, you need to understand how to do it. And I say don't buy 50 self-help books, just read. Mm -hmm. Just read and you'll be able to figure it out, you know? Well, thank you, thank, thank you, and Thank you, Deborah. thank you so and much. And thank you all.
Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Author Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>